Good morning. How's everyone doing? So I was all excited on my way this, as I was preparing for this week's message. Found a cool analogy. Of course, I, I jumped online. I was going to order my 3D glasses. And as life goes as a pastor, I was woefully uh, unprepared Friday night. I had forgot to order them. So I was hoping for the, the white uh, cardboard ones with the blue and red so you'd obviously know that they were 3D glasses. And I put them on, showed my wife yesterday, and she's like, she kind of just gives me that look, the disapproving look, and she's like, you just look like a hipster. Um, so i uh, wearing these 3D glasses to prove a point. How many of you have ever been to a 3D movie? Raise your hand. Now, depending on the generation you represent today, the 3D movie that you remember may have been Jaws, may have been Indiana Jones, may have been uh, Avatar if you're, you're pretty young. Um, but whatever that experience was for you, I don't know what it was like. For me, it was like a whole different world. Let's take Avatar, for example. It's a, a story about a bunch of blue people that are ruling this other world, and I'm not going to get into the plot because it's not important, but when you put these 3D glasses on, it's like you step into another world. Colors are richer. Uh, not only are the colors are richer, but you feel like you could reach out and touch. Uh, how about in Jaws? Have you ever seen Jaws in 3D? You look and the shark's just kind of <laughs> coming right out at you. But I don't know about you. After a little while in a 3D movie, maybe my eyes are getting worse, or I don't know what's happening to me in my life, but um, about halfway through the 3D movie, I get a little, I don't know, tired of wearing the glasses. My eyes start to hurt because I'm experiencing, experiencing this other world. So inevitably, in every 3D movie I've ever gone to, I take the glasses off. And then it gets even worse because now I'm trying to watch a 3D movie with no 3D glasses. Now, how many of you have ever done that in the movie theater and, and have been looking at the screen? If you haven't done it, it's not very fun and you realize you wasted your money on a ticket. Because here's the deal. If you're watching a 3D movie with 2D eyes, you're missing out on the entire world, the entire experience that the 3D movie offers. So as I'm looking up at the screen, the people are fuzzy. I can hear the, the drama that's going on through the speakers. I'm getting a partial picture of what the movie actually is. So I let my eyes adjust. I kind of close them for a minute, regret buying the 3D ticket, and I put on the 3D glasses again. And then all of a sudden, I'm back into this new world. I'm back into this new experience. And then again, I, I walk out of the theater and I swear I'm never going to go to a 3D movie again, but I'm sure I'll be in that position not too long from now. But you see, I believe that we all have these misconceptions in life or these distorted views that cause us to see the world and cause us to see the gospel differently than we should. It's like God has given us these 3D glasses, which is called the gospel, to see the world through. But what we do is we get tired of living in the gospel, so we take these glasses off. And we try to live a Christian life without wearing the 3D glasses or the worldview that God has given us. We try to approach Christianity in a different manner than which it was supposed to be approached. 
A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite authors, and he said this. Where did it go? There it is. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So today, I want to take a minute and talk to each and every one of you about this very thing. I want to talk to you about your distorted perception or the manner in which you've been viewing the gospel. Because the manner in which we view the gospel will dictate how we choose to live our lives. So having a proper understanding of the gospel allows us to frame and view God and view the world and view how we live in church in the proper manner. I want to challenge you today to put on a proper worldview, a proper view of the gospel because it will cause you to live differently. I don't know how it is in your church, but we, we come week in and week out and it can become routine. It can become this thing that we just do over and over again instead of stopping and considering what God might do in our lives. For example, um, we have people who come in all the time hearing the gospel every week, but inevitably, as discipleship pastor at Vail Church, someone will come to me and say, it's like I heard the gospel for the first time today. It's like my eyes were open for the first time today. Or, man, I've heard the gospel for years, but now it's sunk in. You see, what's happening is God is giving them these 3D glasses, these uh, new perspectives on the world around him. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Bible. I know it's a novelty here in church, but it's a big deal, and it's a big deal in the Baptist tradition for sure. So let's talk about the Bible. If we understand it from cover to cover, it's called a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is basically one long story, meaning from the Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation, it is all one continuous story. Now, what happens in our church life is we come over and over again, and we kind of view each part in Scripture each week, and we kind of break it out, and we say, okay, well, this particular story applies here. Uh, But when you understand the gospel in its grand narrative, you understand that Leviticus, a book of all the Old Testament law, serves a purpose. It all serves a purpose, and it all points to Jesus. It all points to the gospel. So when I say the gospel is a meta narrative, that's what I mean. It means a whole series of stories that point to one bigger picture. The bigger picture is Jesus. Now, let's switch over to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul came along after Jesus rose from the dead, and he was persecuting Christians, as you may know. And the Apostle Paul had an experience with Jesus. He had a moment where his gospel perspective was changed. And what happened for him was he went on to write the majority of the New Testament. He went on to write the letters that we look at today. They're called epistles. They're called letters. But basically, Paul was writing to a group of people. And what I want to do first as we begin to build our case here is talk about who, in fact, he was addressing So if you have your Bibles today, I would encourage you to turn as we go. We're going to go through several different books. You're welcome to go there. I will tell you when we land on the text that we're going to spend the rest of our time in. But we're going to start in the book of Romans. And we're going to go to Romans chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. 
as a pastor, there's something just so exciting when you hear all those little tiny papers going. It's like, yay, people are paying attention. <laughs> so, the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. It says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Now, brothers being the people in the church. He wasn't addressing the people down the street who didn't live the way Christ was calling them to live. He was speaking to people in the church. He's speaking to church folk. Church folk, he's speaking to us. Making the connection? I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I want to note a couple of things here. He's pointing out the harvest. Well, what harvest could he be referring to if he's addressing a group of believers? Okay, that's one of the questions. Another one, um, the harvest had to become, we have to conclude, if he's addressing this harvest, he's, he's concluding that the gospel still needs to take root in the believers in which he's writing to. You see, we share the gospel at Vail Church, and I'm sure you share the, the, the gospel consistently here. We share it so it'll take root in your heart, it'll take root in your mind, and it'll start to cause you to have a different worldview. Let's read verse 15. It says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to those of you who are in Rome. You see, when he's writing this letter, he's writing to people in the church. He's writing to non-believers. He's writing to anyone who's going to pick up this message because he wants the gospel to take root in their life regardless of their place in the church or in the community. If you have your Bible, I'm going to keep building this case. Go to Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for it was righteousness through the law when Christ died for no purpose. Again, who's he addressing in the book of Galatians? He's addressing Galatian believers. He's addressing people in the church, church folks. He's addressing you today. We need to let the gospel take root in our lives. Turn towards chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and counted it as righteousness. We won't turn there, but if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, he's reminding them of the gospel they had already received. If you look at Philippians chapter 1, Paul is writing from prison. He's writing again to believers to remind them of the gospel in which they've already received. Whether you've been a believer for 10 minutes or a believer for 20 years, the gospel is just as impactful for you today. 
I reference all of these letters and we kind of go all around the Bible simply to say this, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for you if you are lost in your sin and you don't know that you can see the way out and the gospel is for you if you're a believer in the church and you feel like you have it all together. The gospel is for everyone, amen? Now, I grew up, I I know I sound like I'm from the South, but I actually grew up in a charismatic church in Minnesota. And it wasn't just a charismatic church, it was Pentecostal church. So, you know, the, the, the ladies with the white dresses and the hats and they're laying on the ground yelling and all that crazy stuff. I grew up in that tradition. So when I'm preaching, uh, hopefully it doesn't come across as too intense. I just get really excited. So if you get excited about the gospel today and you hear something that you're enjoying, I want to invite you to say amen. I want to invite you to say come on, and I want to invite you to say preach. Any one of those items are completely acceptable. If you just want to sit there too, I completely understand, but I'm so excited to share with you today. Presbyterian theologian Benjamin Warfield says this, There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage in our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We, always, we must always be accepted simply for Christ's sake or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe. It is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need for Christ does not cease once we believe nor does the nature of our relation to him or to God through him even alter, no matter what our attainments in Christian graces, meaning no matter how good you think you are, no matter how many quiet times you lock under your belt, no how many checklists you walk through your day with, no matter what our attainments in the Christian graces are or our achievements in Christian behavior may be, it must always come back and rest on the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, our main text today, so let's hear the Bible turning again. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and my main text is going to be verses 1 through 4. I love it. I love it. Listen to that. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I want you to walk away with three understandings, three points, call them whatever you like, but I want you to walk away with three different perspectives on the gospel. I believe that it is all encompassings, and my three main understandings will be the gospel saves your past, the gospel saves your present, and the gospel saves your future. We're going to talk about those three points today. Again, the gospel covers your past, the gospel covers your present, and the gospel covers your future. Understanding number one, let's talk about the gospel covering your past. 
Now, when someone accepts Christ, we generally kind of always look back on our life, and, and there's usually something that someone's coming to faith for, like God is calling me to step away from a life of drugs, or God is calling me to step away from this certain sin or these people that I have hurt. Um, usually, we all can look back on our lives and point to two or three big, really big things and be like, yep, glad Jesus saved me from that. Sure, we still have scars, we have things that we regret, but ultimately, we, we can get on board with the gospel saving your past. Look back in the text. It said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel in which I preached to you, which you received. Look back at your own life. Look at that person who had an influence on your life that led you to Jesus. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was a camp counselor. Maybe it was a mentor. Maybe it was a friend. For me, um, it was actually, his name was Jim Probst. He was a youth pastor at the time. And growing up in a charismatic tradition, I kind of got jaded towards church life and all that it can imply and the life you have to look like you're living. Um, and it was really while I was talking with him and dialoguing about the importance of the gospel that it started to sink into my heart that Christ wants to take everything in your past. He wants to consume you in every manner possible. Who's that person for you? Who's that person that you can say led you to that point? Look back on that conversation. Ultimately, when we look at the gospel and we look at all that Christ has done for us, our, our, our typical response is to look at the past. And Christ has saved us from so many things. I remember when I was 16, I found out that a girlfriend that I had had uh, decided to have an abortion. And of course, it was my, I was participating in that. And, and looking back at that moment, I'm so glad that even though I am X, Y, and Z, God redeemed me. God called me. He forgave me. Now, that doesn't take away the pain. That doesn't take away the sin. That doesn't do anything other than set me free. As we look at this understanding and we understand that God has saved our past, guess what I want to tell you today? Jesus Christ died on a cross, died on a tree for you and for me so that your past sins could be taken care of. Amen? That's a beautiful thing right there. Let's move on to understanding number two. Understanding number two is this. We are to stand in the gospel. Look at the verses we are working with today in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. I want to talk to you about standing in the gospel. See, we live in a church culture, right? Um, I would say that as culture is evolving, we're almost living in a post-Christian world in regards to how culture has changed and so much of our Christian values has slowly changed and changed and seeped more and more out of culture. But when you get into the church world, you have this understanding of how you should live, right? There's a series of checks and balances. So the person who is a sinner saved by grace comes through the door of the church, and over the course of 20, 30 years, they transform into a saint. They transform into this person who has it all together, who is doing all of the right things, right? That's, that's the impression we give. That's what a new believer who walks through the door and feels uncomfortable thinks, man, I can never be like so-and-so. 
I can never have that kind of life. I can never hit that kind of series of checks and balances. But when Paul talks about standing in the gospel, and when you understand his meta narrative that, that God is writing, standing in the gospel does not mean that you're moving towards sainthood and perfection, and sainthood being in the traditional manner that the Catholic Church would put. Sainthood means that you're never leaving the gospel. Sainthood means that you are continually being transformed. And that brings me to my next point. The gospel saves our present. The gospel saves our present, meaning when you come to Christ and you're grateful for the fact that he's redeemed the sins of your past, you now look at your own life and the gospel is redeeming your present. Well, what does that mean? It means that every single day you're coming back to the simple fact that Jesus Christ has saved you, loved you, died for you. As a response, you don't get to check things off your list in order to create this series of things that make you look good. No. Jesus is the thing that always makes you look good. You can have all, you can be Billy Graham, and at the end of the day, Billy Graham, with all of the salvations that he has, quote unquote, under his belt, is the same as you and me before Christ, because it's Christ's blood that sets us apart. So, why is that so important? When we have the uh, ability to stand in the gospel, we have the opportunity to say no to sin. Because here's the deal. If it's based on Jesus saving us, redeeming our past, coming to this present moment, and this present moment now we have to make ourselves better going forward, those of you in the room with more willpower are going to do better. Those of you with less willpower are going to do better. But ultimately, both of you, whether you have willpower or not, are going to fail. You're going to make those mistakes again. The beauty about the gospel in this word, uh, standing is this word sustaining. It's the gospel that continually sustains you, meaning you may not always be a good representative of the gospel, but irregardless, Christ's gospel works through you on your behalf to declare you a child of God, meaning you can come and sing in church on Sunday, but the gospel is still what sustains you. It's not that series of lists that saves you. When you're standing in the gospel, you're able to do a few different things better. And by standing in the gospel, I want to be crystal clear here. By the continual reminder and understanding of what God has done for you, you have the opportunity to work. So when I say stand in the gospel, it's standing with that worldview, those glasses that have the gospel in focus so that you can see the world that God is communicating to you. When we stand in the gospel, we have the ability to fight the sin that's before us. We now have a choice because Christ has set us free to say no to sin. But even when we say no to sin, it's because he gave us that freedom to do so in the first place. It's all about him. When we stand in the gospel, we have the opportunity to pray. And not pray so that we can check it off our list. We have the opportunity to pray because it allows us the ability to depend on him because we know it's all about him. We know standing in the gospel is all about him. It allows us to have boldness because we know that when we have boldness, we are representing him and ultimately it's all for him. 
Understanding number three that I want to talk to you about today, and this is the, the thing that I don't think I got for years, and I'm still trying to process it. So you have this moment of transformation, right? You have this Romans 10, 9 experience that says, if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You have that aha moment where you recognize that he's dying for the sins of your past and he's dying for the sins of your present. But when you understand the gospel in its entirety, Jesus died for the sins of your future. He died for the things you're going to do tomorrow. When you asked Christ into your heart, he knew the series of 50,000 things that you're going to do wrong until you die. In one all-encompassing moment, you are made right in your standing before Jesus Christ because of what he's done, not because of what you've done. To me, that's a beautiful thing. Look at verse 2. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. See, we take hope in the future that God has set before us because we know that he knows what we're going to do wrong. So now what we get to do is live in gracious response to that. Now that is not freedom to sin and continue sinning. What it is freedom to do is to step back and say, you know what? Christ knew my life in its entirety. He knew everything I was going to do wrong. Now as a response, every single day I get to choose to live for him because I am completely free. I'm free to serve him. Amen? Let me put it this way. I have, um, I've had three kids. I have two. We, we actually lost one. Um, and I have, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I have a one-year-old and I have a three-year-old. And my three-year-old now is, I think she's crazy. I'm, I'm pretty sure she's a toddler. And the things that toddlers say, they're so mean. I've never experienced something so mean some of the times what she says, because the sin is in all of our hearts. But I want to point back to this moment. How many of you have had kids, have kids, even remotely like kids? I, I, hopefully that's most of us in some, one of those categories. But one of the things that happened with my daughter now is she runs around the house, and you'll hear, crash. Uh-oh. Dad runs because he knows what's about to happen. You know that there's this moment after the fall that they're like sucking in all of the wind so they can go, Aah! they can yell because they're in pain. They need attention in that moment. So my daughter's a pretty good runner, so you'll hear this all the time. Every once in a while, you hear her fall. Now I look at my one-year-old who, just these last few weeks, took his first steps. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but I'll, be for, I'll forever see this in my mind. My wife is holding him, and we've got like every sort of bribery on this end, and we're holding toys over here, we're holding treats, whatever to get him to take his steps. And my little boy is just like, ah, it's like Frankenstein is walking around here. And what happens? First couple steps. First couple steps. First couple steps. He falls. As a dad, I would never run over to my son and say, what's wrong with you? You're not taking any steps. It's simple. You just put your foot in front of the other. 
I would never chide my son for doing that. Every time he falls, you know what I do? I run over to him, I pick him up, and I pat his back. And I say, it's going to be okay, let's do it again. It's going to be okay, let's do it again. You see, the same thing happens when we understand the gospel. God the Father is down there just saying, take a step. Be faithful, serve me, take a step. And you know what, when you first start to learn to walk, take a step, take a step. You continually fail over and over and over again. And at no point is your Father in heaven thinking, you know, if you had just done what I had said, I, I wrote this out for you, stupid. Come on, get up, get up. He's never doing that. But in the church, in our world, in our lives, we try to think of God in heaven as this overarching beam who's got a magnifying glass on us just waiting for us to make a mistake. When the reality is, as a dad who doesn't get it right, meaning I'm not the best dad in the world, there are times when I choose selfishness over my kids. There are times when I don't love my wife as I should. And in comparison to God the Father, I'm a bad dad. But guess what? Every single time my kid falls, I'm right there to pick him up. And guess what? The beautiful thing about this understanding and understanding that God died for your future is that it sustains you. It gives you hope. It gives you a future. It allows you to say every time you fail and every time you stumble, there's a God in heaven who's not saying, how could you do that? He's saying, I'm ready to pick you up. I'm ready to restore you. I'm ready to walk alongside you. And what it looks like in our Christian journey is it looks like my three-year-old, as she's progressed now and she's gotten better and better at walking, she's running. She's doing crazy things. She's jumping off furniture. She's growing in her understanding but ultimately, I know that my daughter is going to fall. And at no point in this journey is there ever going to be a dad who says, I can't believe you can't do it. You see, the beautiful thing about the gospel, and when you really start to understand it in your heart, and you start to put on these glasses, these worldviews of who God is, you understand that there's a God in heaven who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. He redeemed your past. He took away all the things that were hurting you. He redeemed your present, meaning he gives you the ability to sustain you to walk forward. And then ultimately, he gives you the ability to have a future. He gives you the ability to have a hope, to trust in who he is. My prayer for you today is that you would adjust your worldview and live from the context of this gospel that sustains. Because it's not a one-time thing where you just pray the prayer, you're done, you understand the gospel. It's a continual daily progression of Jesus Christ transforming you as you understand who he is on a deeper level. Would you join me together as we pray and ask God to process this in our hearts? Again, the understandings that we have come to today is that the Bible communicates one grand story, and this grand story is the gospel, and the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ died for you and for me to redeem your past, to redeem your present, and to redeem your future. Would you pray? Father God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here in this place the opportunity that we have to come together as believers in Christ in a country that is free. We are gracious, graciously aware of who you are.
Father, I pray that each one of us this week would walk out this gospel that we're starting to understand because it is crucial that we understand it long term. Thank you for redeeming our past. Thank you for strengthening our present. And thank you for saving our future. In Jesus' name, we agree together and say, Amen.